All right, well, we're in this series on the Gospel of Mark, and in Mark chapter 9, we find ourselves in this unique story called the Transfiguration. And I don't know if you guys ever felt like this when you're reading the Bible, but um, you ever read the Bible and just there's some passages that you read, some stories that you read, and you just wonder, like, like, what does this mean? Like, why is this even in the Bible, right? And you just wonder, like, what am I supposed to do with it? What, what applications do I draw from this? And, and to me, the transfiguration is one of those passages, at least in my early years of being a believer, when I would come to this, I, I didn't know what to do with it. It just seems kind of out of place. You got this uh, mountaintop experience. Moses comes back, like, out of nowhere. Elijah comes back out of nowhere. The father's speaking. There's a cloud. There's, there's all these, there's bright light, right? And, um... And so this, you know, I thought this might be good for like a Halloween Sunday, but today's, today's like Thanksgiving Sunday, you know what I mean? This Thursday is Thanksgiving, and I thought, what do I do with this passage? And as I began to uh, study and reflect and prepare for this message, I, I, uh, I feel like God did open my eyes and help me to understand uh, what, what this passage is actually meant for us to, to learn from. And, and so I think there's something here that God wants to teach us through the transfiguration in terms of uh, two things. One is uh, that God wants to teach us something from this story in terms of what the disciples saw. And then also, secondly, what the disciples heard. There, there was something they saw in the transfiguration. And there's something that they heard in the transfiguration. And I think these two things uh, will teach us something today. So we'll begin with what they saw, okay? Mark chapter 9, verse 2 says, After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John. Some would say these are kind of uh, the three kind of, um, kind of core group within the, the group of disciples. And Jesus led them up on a high mountain. And I think that's important to kind of note that it wasn't Peter and James and John saying, Hey, Jesus, uh, it's about time for our annual retreat, you know. Uh, but instead, Jesus initiates this. Jesus led them to a mountaintop. And then it says, uh, verse 2, that he was transfigured, transfigured or transformed in outward appearance before them. And his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. What, what this is saying is that other translations actually say there's no uh, earthly bleach that can make his clothes as white as it was in the transfiguration. In the Gospel of Matthew, it actually also adds that the face of Jesus shone like the sun, shone like the sun. And that's pretty bright, right? Because if you ever, like, try to look at the sun, uh, and I don't encourage this, but, but if you want to, you know, six months from now when the sun comes out, um, go and try to look at the sun and, and see how long that lasts. Probably not for a long time because what you're going to notice is it's going to, it could blind you because the sun is that bright. I mean, maybe for like a second or two and then that's it. And what, what uh, the transfiguration is telling us that Jesus' face Right? His face was, was shining and so bright it was like the sun. This is what they saw. If you were a first century Jew or first century Christian, if you were um, reading this text for the first time, what, what would happen to you is you would automatically go back to a story in the Old Testament. Because just the imagery here in the transfiguration uh, would just automatically bring you back to the story of Moses and Mount Sinai uh, in Exodus when the glory of God was there. Because you've got this image of, like, this is Moses. He's, he's here in the transfiguration. You've got this image of, of glory and face shining. And there's a voice from heaven. And there's a cloud. There's a mountaintop experience. So, so you would automatically, and I think the gospel writer knew this, you would be drawn to the story of Exodus where this is where God and Moses would meet together at, at Mount Sinai. Moses, who was appointed, called by God to lead a people 
uh, from Egypt to Canaan, out of slavery to freedom, right? It's a picture of the gospel there too, because of his grace. And he would lead them. And on this mountain top, Moses is receiving incredible instructions from God. And they're having this incredible time where, where Moses, you know, is just receiving and hearing from God. And then basically God says to Moses, it's time for you to now go lead the people And Moses has a request. Do you guys know what that request was? Do you guys remember? Moses has a request. And and, and it it was probably an amazing thing for uh, for Moses to feel like God called me and God appointed me and and God gave me all these instructions. And wow, like I'm going to lead, God's going to use me to lead the people. And yet his one request, his longing was this, God, I want to see your glory. That was the longing of his heart. His heart's desire was not just to, to be used by God. His heart's desire was not just to uh, uh, have instructions from, from God. His heart's desire was to be close to God, intimate with God, where he felt like, God, I, I want to see your face. Like, I, I want to be that close to you. And then do you guys remember what God said? God said, you can't handle it. You can't handle it. Basically, God says to Moses, Moses, I can't show you my glory in its full. I can't do it. Why? The Bible says in Exodus that if, like, there's no one that could see my glory and live. The reason for that is because we understand that the Old Testament sets up this, this, this understanding of, of God as a holy God. Holy creator, sovereign God. And so there's this holiness of God. And, and, and Moses was just a man, right? And so he has, he's a sinful, he has a sinful nature in him. And so man could not just stand in the presence of a holy God and live. And God's trying to, God's trying to um, uh, communicate that to Moses. Saying, Moses, like I just can't do that for you because, because you will not live. The only way man can stand in the presence of God and live is if there was some kind of atonement for your sin. Like there has to be a cleansing, a purification. uh, uh, There has to be a work of righteousness. There has to be something that would mediate or atone for or or be the bridge to gap this distance between the seriousness of sin and the holiness of God. So God is not trying to be mean. He's just saying, Moses, this is how it is. Like, there's no one that can stand in the presence and the, the glory of God without dying because there needs to be a mediator for that. And so here's what God says. God says to Moses, but I'll cut you a deal in a sense. I'm going to actually pass on by, and you're going to see my glory, but it's not going to be my face. It's going to be my back. <laughs> and, and he says, I'm going to put you, in fact, I'm going to put you in the, in the cleft of the rock. I'm going to put you in this crevice. You know, because, like, and I'm doing this to protect you, but you're going to be in between these rocks, and I'm going to just pass on by. And even the backside of who I am, that will be enough glory to have your face shine. And so the Bible says in Exodus that as, as, as uh, Moses was in between these rocks and God would pass on by, and the glory just from the backside, not even from his face, the backside of who he was that passed on by, Moses, as he went down the mountain, do you guys remember what it says? His face was radiant. The words were actually, his face was shining. It was shining, right? There, there was no skin treatment. I don't know if his acne cleared up, maybe. But it wasn't with the work of Neutrogena or whatever. It was, it was that he was reflecting the glory of God. 
God had passed by, and that glory, just even from the backside of God, had, had reflected upon Moses. And Moses was like this mirror that just had this incredible light shone upon him, and he was simply reflecting that. Okay? So, so we have to understand that story in order, to, in order to understand this transfiguration, because what we have here in this transfiguration has a lot of similarities. But there's a lot of striking differences. One is this. You have to understand that in the transfiguration of Jesus, Jesus had, had this radiance. He was bright. His, his, his clothes were intensely white, more than any bleach can ever do. His face was shining like the sun. And what you have to remember here that's different from Exodus is that in Exodus, Moses had the reflection of God's glory but Christ is actually the radiance of God's glory. In other words, in Exodus, when Moses came down the mountain and his face was shining, that shining wasn't coming from within Moses. That was a reflection of someone other. But when Christ is transfigured in Mark chapter 9, that glory came from within. So the difference is this, that Moses had the reflection, but Christ is the radiance. Jesus Christ is not reflecting the glory of God. Jesus himself is the glory of God. This is what Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 says. It should be on the screen. This is that Jesus, he is the radiance, not the reflection. So this is teaching something about who Christ is. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of God's nature, of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. You know why this is important? Because Jesus came, this tells us who Jesus is. When Jesus came, he came fully human, but he was also fully divine. He came fully human, but he was fully God. And see, this is important because in that day when Jesus is walking around and eating and hanging out and, and um, you know, doing things that other people do, nobody questioned his humanity. Nobody went around saying, man, is Jesus human? That, that wasn't the question. They weren't wondering, like, does he go to sleep? Does he eat? Does he walk? They saw that Jesus was fully human. The question, though, for the people in that time was, is he God? So at the transfiguration, here's what Jesus is showing. I'm fully human, but I've always been and still am fully God. This is important. See, when, when Christ came from heaven to earth, when he came fully human, it doesn't mean that he compromised some of his godness. It doesn't mean that it was, he became fully human and, and therefore lost some of his divinity. When he came fully human, he was still fully God. And he was just trying to show his disciples, this is who I am. Pretty cool, right? I, like that's, a, that's an incredible retreat, right? I don't know what kind of shirts they had at that retreat, but that was an incredible retreat, right? To see the glory of Jesus, to see that Jesus is fully human, but he's fully God. And here's why. Because I think even the disciples, even the close disciples, even guys like Peter, you know, who's so ambitious. Even guys like Peter, they didn't, they didn't fully get the picture. They didn't fully get it. And we even saw that last week as Pastor Chris was talking about a passage from Mark 8. And they're, they're, uh, Jesus is doing ministry. And they just, they just don't seem to fully understand who Jesus is in his entirety, in his fullness. They have some idea, they have some thoughts, and maybe even they've projected their own idea of who they want Jesus to be. You ever done that before? Or you're like, I want Jesus to be like this. And then we, we, 
you know, we find out that he's so much more, right? And so the disciples here, this is probably what they thought up to Mark chapter 9, okay? Here's just, I'm just taking a guess here. They probably thought Jesus is a teacher. But in the transfiguration, they find that he is much more. I think they thought Jesus is a healer because up to Mark chapter 9, they've seen Jesus do it. But in Mark 9, they find he's so much more. I think up to this point, they find that Jesus is compassionate. He's feeding the multitude. And then in Mark 9, they find he's so much more. I think they find that Jesus can calm the storms. But in Mark 9, they find that he's so much more. Are you with me? There's so much more to Jesus. See, Jesus was not a man made of the flesh. He was God in the flesh. God in the flesh. And so the first thing that we learn from the transfiguration is that Moses in the Old Testament reflected the glory of God. But Jesus here in the New Testament is showing he is the radiance of the glory of God. He is the exact imprint of God's nature. In other words, when you know Christ, then you know the Father. Because he's not reflecting. He's, he is the glory of God. And so what that means is um, if Jesus Christ was uh, um, uh, radiating the glory of God, the question you have to ask in that transfiguration is this. How is it possible that Peter, James, and John are still alive? Because Moses in Exodus heard God say, there's no one that can stand in my glory. No one can see my face and live. But then you got this transfiguration where Jesus' face is shining like the sun, and he's radiating glory, and he's bright, and no one has died. You know what this is saying? This is a picture of, of salvation. You know what this is saying? This is saying that the difference between Exodus, when Moses was reflecting the glory of God, and no one could live in that presence, and now here in the transfiguration, the difference is that Christ was standing with them. And Christ was standing for them. What this is saying is that when you have Christ, you can stand in the face of God. With Christ, you can be in the presence of God. With Christ, you can be in the glory of God. And a sinful man will be covered by Christ in such a way where you will not die, friends, but you can actually live. Why? Go back to the Old Testament. Because Christ... Christ is the ransom. Christ is the mediator. Christ is the atonement. That if you're standing with Christ, though he's a holy God and we're a sinful man, Christ covers us in such a way that saves us from death to life. The transfiguration then, folks, is a picture of salvation. That those who stand with Christ shall live. See, Moses never saw the face of God. Because there wasn't a mediator. Does that make sense? And now Peter, James, and John, they're, they're standing in the face of the glory of God in, in, with Christ who's not just reflecting. He's radiating the glory of God. It's coming from within himself. But they're not dead. They're actually alive because Christ in his holiness and his righteousness and his grace and mercy covered them in such a way they can actually face God and live. It's the gospel what a beautiful story uh, and truth that this passage is, is teaching us that when someone is standing with Christ, when Christ is standing on your behalf, when Christ is standing on my behalf, then my, then my reality is that I can be with God, is that I can stand face to face with God, which then leads us to this third point, which is this, 
that this transfiguration, what this is teaching, what Jesus is teaching the disciples here is that Jesus, this is probably the most important one here, that Jesus is not just one to believe, but Jesus is one to behold. Jesus is not one to just believe, he's one to behold. There is a difference between believing something and beholding something. See, you can believe something. You can even believe something is good. That doesn't necessarily mean you tasted and seen it. You can believe something is good in your mind, but yet not have it affect your heart. You, you can believe something to be true, and yet distance yourself from actually living it out and experiencing it as a reality. And so what Jesus is saying here is that, is that when I'm inviting you to walk with me and to be my disciple and to be a part of this Christian movement, this gospel movement, I'm not asking you just to believe in me. What Jesus is saying is Peter, James, and John, it's about beholding who I am. In other words, it's about you got to know me. It's about knowing me, not just believing in me. You know how I know this? Because in, if you rewind just a few verses in Mark 8, at the end of Mark 8, you know what the conversation there is between Jesus and Peter, his disciple here? Jesus would ask Peter a question. You guys remember what question that was? Peter, who do you say that I am? That's a question of belief. Like, what do you believe? And Peter answers correctly. It was a good day for him. Right? He says, well, 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 Jesus, you know, you're the Christ. And that's the right answer. That's the right belief. But the story doesn't end there because Jesus, was never, Jesus has never meant this thing to be a belief. He wanted us to behold. So then he, then he takes Peter up on the mountain. And he says, this is who I am. This is who I am. This is what I want you to see. See, for Jesus, it was never just about believing in him, but it was inviting us to a living relationship where we behold Jesus on a daily basis to know him. And, um, and, and when we, you know, the minute we think we know him, know him, Jesus then reveals even more of himself, and we find that Jesus is even deeper and even wider and even higher because there's so much more to Jesus than what we think we know already. Jesus is inviting us. Essentially then, to not just have a Christianity where it's just the statement of faith and doctrine that we have in our head. He, just, he doesn't want us to remain in a belief system. He wants it to impact he, our, our very heart's affection. He wants us to see with their very eyes. He wants us to taste. He wants us to feel and, and to see and behold that he is beautiful and wonderful and majestic and glorious. That we could be in awe and in wonder and marvel at not what we believe, but at what we've beheld. That's, the, that's what Christ is inviting us to. To behold him. To see him, that's what it was about. And, and you ever realize that as, as human beings, that God created us in a way to experience good things in life? That, that we're not just cognitive beings, but we, we're very experiential. Not that that should be the, the only thing that, that drives us. But God created us in a way to experience things, right? And isn't that why we pay such a high premium um, to experience certain things in life? Like we would pay a lot of money out of our own expense, out of our own wallets. We would gladly open up our wallets and say, can I get a ticket to that? Right? 
Coming here to Chicago, uh, my wife wanted to watch Hamilton, and so on our anniversary, um, we watched Hamilton, and I did it not because I love musicals or I love Hamilton. I, I didn't know much about it, to be honest, but I wanted to uh, uh, have a, you know, celebrate our anniversary and my, make my wife happy, so we got to watch Hamilton, you know, but when, when people go sign up for Hamilton, and my, my guess is that there's people here in this room that have watched it, some, when people sign up to buy tickets for Hamilton, my guess is that they're not buying tickets to convince themselves of how good it is. They're not trying to, they're not, they're not saying, well, let's, let's, let's see how good this is. And so here's $100 for a ticket. My guess is that they're, they're already have a belief. They're already convinced that Hamilton is glorious, right? That Hamilton is that good. They already believe it, which leads them to take the next step and say, I don't just want to believe it. I want to behold it. I want to see the glory of Hamilton. And so people at their own expense will pay large sums of money to watch that. Or we'll pay large sums of money to be at Soldier Field and, and have a front row seat at Soldier Field because BTS is in town, right? You thought I was going to say Bears, right? Or maybe the Bears, right? Or, or uh, you know, I live in South Loop, so I hear, it, I hear it, you know. Or Beyonce, right? Like you just want to see the glory of Beyonce. When that, you know, that the hair moves and the glory, that, you know. So, you, like, I gladly open my wallet because I'm not trying to, convinced, you know, be convinced. I'm already convinced. I already believe she's like the best. I already believe BTS is the best. I already believe that bears are going to kill it, you know. And so we would gladly open our wallets at our own expense to, to, to be, behold and experience something that we've already believed to be true. And you know what's crazy about the, the transfiguration of Christ is that at the transfiguration of Christ, it wasn't Peter, James, and John that at their own expense wanted to behold something that they already believe. At the transfiguration, Jesus initiated, God initiated the whole way. And here's what I'm trying to say. With the transfiguration, God at his own expense allows us to behold him. In other words, at the expense of God, we get to behold God. It, 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 wasn't like, it wasn't like Peter, James, and John signed up and paid $150 for this retreat. At the expense of God, they got to behold God. You say, well, they had to climb the mountain. Let me ask you, is it harder to climb the mountain or come from heaven to earth? At the expense of God, they got to behold God. God was convinced that this would be good for them. God knew what they didn't even know. And so at the expense of God, they got to behold God. And so whenever we get a chance to marvel at God, to be in wonder and awe of God, let me tell you, it wasn't at our expense, amen? It wasn't that this is my, uh, this is my reward for what I've accomplished or how much serving I'm doing in the church or how good I've been this week. 
Any time we get to behold God, it's always at the expense of God. Jesus paid the price for our seat at the table. He initiated the whole way because this is the gospel. This is the good news. That it was about what Christ had done on our behalf that at his expense, we get to behold God. There's a brother in our church, in fact, in our campus, right, um, I won't tell you his last name, but his first name is Andrew, and, uh, and, and he's usually in the back um, doing media stuff. But uh, I was reminded of an acronym uh, about this, and he said there's an acronym for grace, and it's this, that grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. Grace is God's riches at Christ's expense. And I love that, that we get to experience the riches of God, but not at our expense, at the expense of God that we get to experience the blessings and the riches and, and the beauty of who God is, but at his expense, not ours. And so for us, the question I want to pause real quick and ask, uh, as, as I want to bring this home for us, and so the question that I ask for us is this, what is it that we've beheld lately? What is it that we behold? If you think about this past week, you know, or think about this month, Maybe you're already there where you realize, you know, 2019 is, is almost at the end. And uh, maybe you started to reflect on this past year. And so the question that I have is, you know, this past year, what is it that you've beheld? You know, where is it that your eyes have been fixed upon? You know, sometimes it's just we've been just distracted. Sometimes we want to be distracted. Sometimes we just tune out, right? Sometimes there's competing glories out there that want our attention and want us to behold that rather than God. And so the question is, what is it that we've beheld? Where, where is our attention and where are our eyes fixed upon? You know, sadly, we live in, in, a, in a broken and fallen world where there is a struggle to behold the glory of God. There is a competition uh, for your affection. There is a competition for your attention because we were created for the glory of God, to behold God. That, that's, I mean, that's our eternal reality, that we're going to behold the glory of God one day in its fullness. And I think that's the will of God even for us here on earth. But I think the challenge is that how do we do that when we live in a world with constant distraction? You ever felt that? Maybe life's circumstances, deadlines at work, or things aren't going right, relationships are, are broken, and all these things are happening, and, and, and we have this competing narrative in the world that says, if you just get that, or if you chase after that, or if you attain that, that will be glorious. That's what the world tries to tell us. And there's these temporary glories that we chase after, whether it's the glory of power or the glory of, you know, worldly success, the glory of riches and wealth, the glory of approval or the glory of comfort. We seek after all of these temporary glories, and so we then we miss out on the glory of God. And you know what I think our trouble is? Our trouble is that we're so easily satisfied with the temporary glories. This is what C.S. Lewis said. He said, to not, to not be easily satisfied. He has this quote that I want to read to you. He says, we are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. 
And I think about, you know, I'm from California, so I think about like a toddler who in his backyard is so content building little sand castles and, 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 and mud, you know, uh, uh, playing with the mud in his backyard because that kid has no idea what it's like to be at Huntington Beach. Are you with me? To be at Huntington Beach where you can't even count the number of sand on the shore. And that's what C.S. Lewis is saying. He's saying, we are so easily satisfied with temporary glories that we miss out on the glory of God that was given to us at his expense. So what do we behold? I think there's something we learn from what they saw, and this is what Christ wants us to see. He wants us to see his beauty. He wants us to know him, like really know him from belief to behold. He wants us to know him. But secondly, they not only saw something, they heard something. In Mark chapter 9, verse 5 uh, or 4, it says that there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Right, so Elijah, Moses, and Jesus were having a conversation. We don't know exactly what they talked about. My guess is it's pretty important. And then, and then in verse 5, and then there's a speech that people start to talk, and it's Peter, right? Peter says to Jesus, and before I get there, Peter was never known to be slow to speech. He was never known as a guy that's like he, 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 he cherishes every he thinks before he talks. He he's not that guy. Like this is a guy who talks when he has nothing to say. You know what I mean? Do you know people like that? You don't have to look around, but just, you know, we, we know, right? We know there's people like that, right? And, uh, and you, you just, you're in a conversation, you're just like, you didn't have to say that, right? That was, you just wasted three seconds of my life. You know, thanks for that, you know. And, and Peter, Peter decides to talk in the, in the transfiguration. Face, Jesus' face glowing, shining like the sun, clothes radiant. And then there, Moses, Elijah, Jesus are having a talk. You know, like my name's James. And so John and Peter, if they're with me, I'm like, let them talk. But Peter has this urge, like, I got to talk, I got to speak. And then this is what he says. He says, he says, uh, 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 he says, Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Like, what? <laughs> like, like, you know what I mean? Like, if I was James and John, like, Peter, you just wasted our life again. Like, three seconds of our life. Like, you just wasted air, right? Like, why, why would you even talk? Like, why, that, had, that had no point to it, you know? And then, and then he goes on, and he's, he's still talking. He goes, let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And I'm like, you know, like I wish I was James and John. I wish I, I, wish I was there just to see their reaction to Peter. Like, dude, this guy's, this guy's not, he doesn't get it, right? They're like, he's talking about making tents. And there's some, there's some scholars that say, well, he might be referring to the Old Testament tabernacle, tent, and things like that. I actually think, uh, you know, I'm going to stick with what Mark says. Mark's commentary says this. Right after they says, uh, you know, for he did not know what to say. I like that. <laughs> I, I agree. I agree. I, I think Peter just did not know what to say. You know what I mean? Like, you should just not talk at all. But, uh, but thanks for that, Peter. And, um, and, like, it's funny because, like, like, nobody acknowledges Peter. Like, no one's saying, that's all, you know, great point. No one says that. Mark just says, like, man, he didn't know what to say, for they were terrified. But there is, there is something they heard that's pretty important. Verse 7 says, and a cloud overshadowed them. And the cloud in the Old Testament, you guys remember, the cloud represented the presence of God. And the voice came out of the cloud. And the father would say, this is my beloved son. This is my beloved son. And so what I find so um, uh, uh, interesting about that is that I realize there aren't many times in the Bible where 
God the Father actually decides to split open the heavens or speak through the cloud and directly to his people. There aren't many times. We know that Jesus is having a life of intimacy with the Father and, and, and praying to the Father, but we don't, we're not, we're not in, the, in the know of what they're saying or what words are being exchanged here, right? But there's, from what I understand, there's two times in the Bible that God the Father from heaven speaks on, on earth. It's two times. Do you guys remember the first time? The first time was at the baptism. At the baptism of Jesus, he gets baptized by John the Baptist. Do you guys remember what the father says? He says the very same thing he says here. He says, this is my son in whom, uh, this is my beloved son in whom I'm, I am well pleased. And then he decides to speak again. And he just says the same thing. If I was the Holy Spirit, I would have been like, God the father, you already said that. Uh, you, you sound like you're on repeat. If you're only going to choose two times to speak, maybe you can add a little bit to what you said in the first place. Uh, because uh, they already know you said that, right? And, and, and yet, yet there's no mistake here. Baptism and the transfiguration, the two times God the Father decides to speak, he says the very same thing. He doesn't add to it. You know why? Because that is a central message for everyone who follows Christ. The central message is the belovedness of God. That Jesus is the son of God in whom the father is pleased. And anyone who stands with Christ, anyone who's, who, 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 who is covered by Christ, the father sees you the same way. That you are the beloved child of God because in you there is Christ. And I thought, you know, if I was like, if I was, the, I'm just saying, let's, if I was the Holy Spirit and I knew like the Father is going to decide to speak through the cloud this time, I would say, you know what, God the Father, maybe you can add to it. Like this would be a good time to say something like this. This is my beloved son because look at all he's done. Because look at Mark 1 through 8, he's healed people, he's taught with authority, he's feeding the thousands, he's calming the storms. I would say, God the Father, maybe you can talk about that. Because as a father of a child, I know what it's like for that, that urge to want to brag about everything your son does well. So my son, Benjamin, is four years old. And if he gives me reason to brag, I'll brag. I'm still waiting for reasons, but you know, if... <laughs> If there was any reason for me to brag, like I'm telling you, I would brag. That's just the heart of a father. In fact, this past week, we had a big moment in our house, in the Myung household. And the big moment was this. For the last two years, Benjamin has been using these training chopsticks uh, for toddlers. It's where you, like, there's like these slots where you put your other fingers in. And, and so it just, it kind of mimics the motion. And so that, you know, it kind of trains you when you become an adult to use chopsticks, Right. As an adult, don't feel embarrassed to use it. It's, it's a good tool, right? But this past week, this past week, and I don't know, like, I, just, I don't know how it all went down, but all of a sudden, I, I'm eating my food, and Benjamin's like, look, Daddy, and he shows me, and he's, done, he's not using his, his little cartoon training chopsticks. He's using our adult chopsticks, and he's picking up rice and cucumber, and he's saying, he's telling us that I know how to use chopsticks now. And he was, he, was, he surprised himself, 
I was surprised myself, and my wife was surprised. And it was like as frivolous as that is, it was like a bragging moment because as soon as we saw Benjamin do that, we both got our phones, and we wanted to show our grand, uh, his grandparents in California. Look at what my beloved son, Benjamin, in whom I am well pleased. Look at what he's doing. He's now using adult chopsticks. And I, and I say that because I, there's probably 40-year-old adults who still struggle, right? It's, it's, it doesn't come naturally. And so I'm like, at four years old, is this normal that he's using chopsticks? I was so, I was so proud, you know? And I'm like, if God, the Father, if you're, if you're going to speak, and it's only going to be like two times, and you're going to talk about your son, like, would you not want to talk about his performance? The father doesn't talk about his performance because his love was never based on his performance. His love was always based on his position. And he repeats that again and again, that this is my beloved son. And I love him not because he's done miracles, not because he's fed the thousands, not because he calms the storms, not because he's perfect, which he is. I just love him because he's my son position in relation to the father. And I think we need to hear this. This is the part of the gospel that I think we need to hear every single day. That when God says that he loves you, it's not based on performance. It's based on position. It's based on our right standing with God. And in fact, we had no work or part of it. Christ did all the work at his expense. We got to stand with Christ, with the Father. And when God says to us that he loves us, it's not because you are so faithful in serving or you're memorizing scripture or now you're tithing in the church. Those are all great things. But that's not the reason God loves us. God loves us because of the position we have in Christ. That when God the Father sees us, he sees his own son in us. You know why I say we need to hear that? It's because uh, that's actually not easy for us to embrace. Right? Do you ever, have you ever received a compliment you felt like you're not, you weren't really worthy of? Doesn't it make you feel uncomfortable? A little bit awkward? Almost like, I don't know if I'm all that, but, but thank you. Why? Because even a compliment, we feel like we have to earn it. You ever receive a free gift and you don't know where it came from or what you did, but someone just decided to bless you. At our old church, we used to have this thing called random act of kindness. And we just bless the heck out of someone. And they don't know why we did it, but we just, we just want to love on you. And when you receive that free gift, it makes you feel uncomfortable because you feel like you have to owe them back. Why? Because we have a hard time with grace. This is what the Father is saying to us, that he loves you and you don't have to try to owe him. He, he loves you and you don't have to try to perform your way into his love. But he loves you because of his son. And everything we do flows out of that love. Perhaps this week, that's something that you need to hear, that God the Father loves us not because of our performance, but because, simply because of our position with Christ. And so Jesus is inviting his disciples. I think what God is trying to teach us today in church is that he's inviting us to not only believe in him, but to behold him. Because it's in that beholding of Jesus that therein lies a transfiguration for us. There, there is a transformation that actually takes place for us, with us, uh, through us, when we actually behold the glory of God. I'm not, I'm not making this up. 2 Corinthians 3.18, Apostle Paul 
he says, and we all with unveiled faces beholding, there it is, not just believing, but beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. He says that when we behold the glory of the Lord, there is a transformation that takes place. That word transformation, Paul uses it again also in Romans 12, when he says to be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know that same Greek word, metamorphose, he uses about transformation, is the word Mark uses in Mark chapter 9 that talks about Jesus being transformed or transfigured before them. There was a metamorphose that happened. And so Paul is trying to get at this idea that when we behold the glory and the fullness of God and who Jesus is, there is a metamorphose that actually occurs with us. A transformation, a transfiguration that happens with us that we aren't the same. Metamorphose is two words combined. Meta means with and morphothe to change. It literally means to change after being with. And what a beautiful picture of what a, what a life looks like when they've been with Jesus. That you are changed because you've been with that you were changed because you've been with. You are changed and not because you know a lot of information. Amen? You are changed not because of all your performances. Amen? You are changed because you've been with the one who is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of God's nature. And when you are there with Jesus, you and I, we become changed. You know, let me, let me just tell you something about Hamilton. Uh, Hamilton was incredibly great. And I... I, I acknowledge that. But if you know me, like, I've never been a, a musical fan. And so I kind of went into it with, you know, very little expectation. I just wanted to celebrate our anniversary. But let me, let me confess, it's kind of embarrassing to say, but the very next day after watching the Hamilton and experiencing the glory of Hamilton, I, I, I remember the next day I, I, I caught myself. I caught myself saying, Alexa, play the soundtrack to Alexander Hamilton. Are you with me? Anybody done that before, right? And, and luckily I was alone and nobody saw me. But in that moment, I'm like, what did I just say? Like, that, that is not who I used to be. I would have never, if I asked my wife, I would have never said, hey, Steph, can we listen to Alexander Hamilton's soundtrack? I would have never. You know what happened to me? I beheld the glory. <laughs> I, 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 I was there, I experienced it, I, I was present, and it did something to me. It was a fading glory, because you know, it kind of faded away. But in that moment, I experienced something that, that left an imprint. And here's, here's the beautiful thing about the glory of God, is that the glory of God doesn't fade, but it increases. And God takes you from one glory to another, and one day to another, and he says, you were with me yesterday, but come again today. Amen? He says, come again today and come again today. And, he's, and he shows you something new about himself. And he shows you his glory. And then it does something to you where you're like, play that again. Amen? And you're like, say that again. And you want to you tell others. And you become this evangelist. And the way that some of you, you told everybody about Hamilton. When you're with Jesus, it changes you. There's a metamorphose for the people of God. When they're with Jesus. Real quick, in the church, and sometimes, you know, in Christianity, we, we, we have this misunderstanding that somehow Christianity is about belief and then behave. 
believe in God, and behave like God. But it's so much more. The central message of Christianity is not believe and behave. The central message of the faith is behold. It's behold. You, we, we, we should believe. We're called to believe. We're, God is inviting us to believe. And, and yes, there is a behavior. There is a change in our behavior. There is a change in, in how we live our life. That's true. But it's not believing and behaving. It's about beholding. It's about beholding. Here's, here's how I know that. Because this transfiguration when Jesus showed them his glory, it was a foretaste of an eternal glory that there will be a day when, when it won't just be for a moment on a mountaintop. It will be for eternity when you will be face to face in the presence of God. And that is our eternal reality, folks. For those of us in Christ, that is where we're headed. It's beautiful. It's majestic. And let me tell you why I believe the central message of Christianity is to behold the glory of Christ. Why? Because in the eternal, eternal reality in heaven, there, you don't need to believe. Why? Because faith will become sight. And in the eternal reality, you don't need to behave, right? Because there is no sin in the presence of God. But in the eternal presence of God, you know what we will do? We will behold. We will behold the glory of God. That is the will of God even for us on earth. To come to Jesus, not just so that you can believe and behave. He wants you. He wants me. He wants our church. To behold the glory of God. So that when we come at 3.59 p.m., ready to worship, we, we, we just simply respond and not say, we, we, we believe, but we've beheld. We've seen how beautiful you are, and these songs are a response and an expression of your glory. That's what it is. Peter was changed on that mountaintop. He, in fact, you don't have to turn there, but in 2 Peter, he writes this later in his account, in his book. He says that we were eyewitnesses of that majesty. The, uh, the gospel of John, John was trans, John's change was transformed. He says in his opening book, in his gospel, that we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father. They have beheld the glory and they were changed forever. And the father not only says that this is my son, but he also says this. He says, listen to him. Listen to Jesus. So many times we skip, the, this, is the, this is my beloved son, and we jump to listen to him. We jump to behavior. We jump to obedience. The father is trying to point out that all obedience flows from understanding who Christ is. That you have to know who Christ is if you want to actually obey. That if we are to listen to him and trust him and obey him and follow him, then never forget who Christ is. The God the Father speaks into earth and he says a statement of who Jesus is. And then he calls his people to follow him because of who he is. Church, don't ever forget that. Let's not wake up and say, I just have to listen. I just have to obey. That's religion. But first, hear the, the voice of God inviting you to behold the beauty of Christ. And then find him trustworthy. Find him good so that you can obey. Listen to him. 
And lastly, I love what Mark says here in Mark chapter 9, verse 8. This is how he closes this. He says, suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. They no longer saw anyone. In other words, Moses was there, Elijah was there, Jesus was there. But all of a sudden, Moses and Elijah faded away and all they saw was Jesus. Only Jesus. Only Jesus. You know why that's so significant? It's because in the Bible, Moses represented the law. He was the great lawgiver. Elijah was their great prophet. But Jesus was the one to fulfill both the law and the prophets. In other words, the life and ministry of Moses and the life and ministry of Elijah, both the law and the prophets had one main point, one main purpose. And you know what that was? It's to point to Christ who would fulfill both the law and the prophets. And so Mark says, says it like that, that, that at the mountaintop there were once three, but Moses and Elijah faded away and all they saw was Jesus. What a beautiful picture this is for us to see that everything is pointing towards Christ. That when we read the law, when we read about the prophets, everything is pointing us so that in the end, when it's all said and done, all we see is Jesus. All we see is Jesus. So I want to invite you this week, I guess here's the application, here's the response, to fix our eyes on Jesus, to behold him so that we may obey him. We live in a world of distractions. But remember that Jesus led the disciples to the mountaintop, and he might not be leading you to a mountaintop, but he will always lead you to himself. As we enter Thanksgiving this week, as we enter a season of Advent soon, as we enter Christmas soon, may we fix our eyes on Jesus again, and you will find that there is nothing on earth There is no temporary glory that compares to the glory and the beauty and the majesty of God. And he's saying, behold. Would you bow with me?